Hey, Robert. Hey, you're on. We're back. It's been a while. It has. How are you? Good. Good. So uh, since we last talked, we, we did quite a few shows on crypto and, and FTX. Where, well, just in the last few days, I'm not sure exactly when this will be released, but just in the last two days, few days, uh, uh, the former CEO founder of FTX has been uh, arrested in the Bahamas. Uh, Sam uh, Sam uh, is uh, is now under custody. Uh, he has been indicted. I think four four different counts of fraud, and uh, you know it looks pretty bad for him. Um, so um, so you know that's actually that's actually now happened. There was <laughs> there was this period where I thought it was he was doing interviews as if nothing had happened. Uh, he, he, you know he was just. Uh, uh, acting as if everything was normal when it was obvious, I think, to anybody on the sidelines that no, this was not going to be normal. Um, so FTX has gone under; it's gone, and I, I think it's understood pretty well that there's real fraud here. This is not just a liquidity crisis. This is not something. I mean, they 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 really did commit fraud. Um, but now this has rippled onto the largest exchange uh, in the crypto world, and we're seeing some trouble at Binance. Uh, withdrawals, uh, large withdrawals, uh, and, uh, and kind of the question out there is who's next? Well, it seems like until there's transparency, the only rational response to this is to get out of the organized exchanges that yep. are not you know, pure custo custodians. Uh, and without transparency, you never know. Actually, even with ostensible transparency, you sometimes yeah. don't know, but if you can count the number of uh, traditional exchanges that have stolen money from their customers in the last 20 years, I think on one finger, uh, and it's more like once a month that you find yeah. out in crypto that this kind of stuff has been going on. So uh, I would say it's until the, the sector cleans up its act. Nobody is willing to give an uh, opaque exchange the benefit of the doubt anymore. Uh, and we've seen with uh, Binance that you can, you know, we've also seen this work though with Tether is you can provide something that you can call proof of mm -hmm. uh, that everything's fine. And historically people have believed that and it looks like they're not believing it anymore. Yes, and it'd be interesting to see what happens with Tether. Um, I don't think we've heard the last. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 so part of the struggle is they're trying to figure out, and this is natural in, I think, a, in a new industry, how to provide that visibility, how to provide, uh, you know, uh, people with, uh, with the confidence that they really... Uh, have the assets that they claim to have without at the same time giving up a big part of uh, crypto, which is anonymity and, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the speed in which you can transact and, and move large sums of money. And yet at the same time, uh, how do we audit? How do we maintain a situation where people are confident in your business model? And that seems to be what they're struggling with now. They realize certain business models don't work or they're realizing the hard way they don't work. And now the question is what does, and maybe nothing does, but but they're trying to figure that out. Well, it is a human nature that none of that trying to figure out went on when things were good and you had a lot of cushion and you know time to do that. Um, we, we would all prefer that 
everyone just trust us and you know yeah. that, that they rely on our integrity that we're in fact doing what we say we're doing uh, and that does work most of the time in society um, but when you're talking about billions of dollars it it has never lasted for an extended period of time uh, even you know in the best situations there's doubt is going to arise you know i don't think anyone thought that uh what's his name george in it's a wonderful life that he was stealing yep. their money, <laughs> but it didn't matter. Uh, when yeah. push comes to shove, uh, when people are afraid they're going to lose their money, they're going to take the safest route, which is get into their hands. Uh, so there's not a lot of runway. Um, you know, Binance was a week ago was putting $2 billion into a rescue fund and next week yeah. might be tapping that rescue fund. And, and uh, of course, all the attempts to audit so far, failed and the promise was there was this promise and maybe maybe it's legit that the blockchain would find that there was some automated way to audit all these accounts and to make sure that what binance was telling us was actually true but it turns out it's not that simple and maybe we need human auditors after all at least for now well the whole point of the exchange is to avoid the blockchain so the blockchain is very uh, cumbersome and energy intensive mm -hmm. at this stage. And so if you did every single transaction on the blockchain, it would be very slow and it would be very cumbersome. And but so easy the, to verify and therefore but, but easy to audit. Yeah, yeah, completely transparent in the ways that you want it to be and um, reliable and immutable. And all. you get all the benefits of the blockchain when you layer and exchange over it so that mm -hmm. most of the transacting can happen off the block chain you don't have to, to deal with the inefficiencies on a ongoing perpetual basis you can sort of batch it in then yeah. it you you introduce all of the problems that we know have always existed in finance and you know i don't see that there's there's an easy solution to that dichotomy and saying oh we'll do it on the blockchain well if you do it on the blockchain then you don't need an exchange so in and you know ultimately there's a lot of talk about decentralized exchanges so that it it so that you you're not i guess aggregating money across from from a bunch of different people or aggregating crypto from a bunch of different people well, i think what you're doing is is you're giving transparency into what's going on inside of the exchange that the exchange itself becomes okay. more like a blockchain so if you have a decentralized okay. exchange you don't you don't have sbf giving special permissions to I mean, you could, but they, if the code is available, then people will figure it out that there, there are these back doors and that there's that Alameda can have infinite leverage and you know, have access to the entirety of the FTX customer base's money. You know, that, that would have raised a lot of alarm bells uh, for anyone, even the greatest yep. believer in SBF. Uh, so I think that there is a way to do it. Um, when I say that putting it on the blockchain isn't a solution, that doesn't mean there isn't a solution. It's just not as simple as using the existing technologies. So uh, in the meantime, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, is uh, holding out. Uh, it's, uh, it, it seems, we were, I think we were talking yesterday, and it seems like Bitcoin has become just a uh, an asset that has a high beta with the NASDAQ. It's a, it's a kind of a proxy for technology. Uh, uh, why would that be? I mean, uh, you know, what are the kind of, what are the kind of the, what are the flows that are, that are making that a reality? 
Well, I, th- I think Bitcoin is fascinating what's happening because, you know, despite the fact it's down drastically from its peaks, uh, it continues to have periods of low volatility and to maintain significant value. And, you know, the mm-hmm. value looks bad compared to a year ago, but it looks great compared to 10 years ago. And so I th- the way I'm thinking about Bitcoin at this point is that it's really a very pure indicator of sentiment about mm-hmm. the future, the, you know, about the technology future. And so you have this in every company, you know, Apple is extremely valuable. Apple is worth trillions of dollars because they've done great things. They're doing great things and investors can expect them to continue doing great things. So there's some combination of what we know today based on the past and the present and what we think about the future. And if you think, if you take the future as ha- being heavily dependent on sentiment, because the future is unknowable, you know, yep. there has to be some belief there. Then Apple is mostly what's real about Apple's business, uh, but there's still this element of sentiment. And if you go back 20 years, it was a, a huge piece of it that Apple's value was based on the things they were going to do in the future. Uh, whereas Bitcoin- And in a sense that works negatively as well, right? I mean, you could have a company that's doing pretty well today but people are just down on it. And that sentiment could could actually, we've seen companies trade actually below what you think they're just the, the kind of performance today would justify. Uh, and that was actually Apple in the 90s. Yes. So, yeah. so, and that that's, I mean, all of these are good things because you want what's happening today to reflect expectations about the future, to reflect mm-hmm. sentiment. You know, if we're all excited about Tesla's prospects for bringing electric cars to market and Tesla gets this massive valuation and GM doesn't, that's totally desirable if GM is never going to be able to, to replicate Tesla's success. And so Bitcoin, though, there, the, the past and present is just all about pricing. There's, there's no use case, despite the fact that it is used the, for a use case that has to be value added from the perspective of the people with guns. And that's just not the case with Bitcoin. And by guns, I mean the people who are uh, officially supposed to have guns, yep. not the people who are using Bitcoin. And the regulators, guns. yeah. Uh, and so there has to be some value that's being built to society. So uh, in the case of Bitcoin, it really does, it's starting to look like a a pure sentiment indicator. And as such, it is going to be very, uh, very, have a very high beta to, I'm trying to think of how to put this in normal people's terms. Um, it's, Highly going correlated. High, yeah. it's going to be very, very responsive to people going, wait a minute, things are looking up for technology um, and to things are looking down. Uh, so if you think about um, other assets that are like that, maybe the uh, you know Arc Innovation Fund is a another one that it's all based on what's going to happen in the future and not what's happening now or what's happened in the past, and you find very high correlations and very high betas in those assets. Yeah, so uh, so right now the last few days the Nasdaq technology stocks have been going up and Bitcoin's been going up with them. It's kind of uh, it's kind of leading uh, a leading indicator. It seems to. It, it, what we mean by a high beta is a beta more than one means for every movement of the, of other technology stocks, the Bitcoin moves even greater. It moves in the same direction, but with more juice behind it, if, if you want. All right, so a lot of so we're here on Wednesday. This will be released probably on Friday, but we're here on Wednesday, and the Fed is about to uh, disclose that it's probably raising the Fed funds rate uh, by 50 basis points. That's what everybody expects. It would be, I think, pretty shock. 
big shock if they if they raised it more or less than that. Um, we got inflation numbers yesterday that were better than expected uh, in terms of both uh, CPI and core CPI. Um, it, you know, so the month over month rate has come down significantly. It's down to 0.1, which is in line with the 2% goal the Fed has. Um, so why are they raising interest rates in spite of the fact that inflation seems to be down? And, and what do you expect is going to happen next year? Well, month to month inflation is is noisy. You know, we've seen it running well over a percent, which you know would translate into a, you know its peak sixteen or seventeen percent annualized, yep. uh, and 0.1 percent is great. Uh, so I don't want to take anything away from that, but I'm sure the Fed looks at it and goes, you know, we're going to need to see a steady, consistent stream of these kind of numbers before we think about changing policy. Uh, and what we've always thought is the best case scenario is that inflation and interest rates meet in the middle, that this wasn't going to happen. You weren't going to get disinflation without interest rates going up. Uh, but if interest rates had to go up to 16%, that would be pretty traumatic for yep. the economy and for the unemployment rate probably spike dramatically. And so it's continues to look like that could be happening. Uh, you know, we haven't had any additional shocks. We've, we've had sort of steady improvement in terms of people adopting to the energy markets that were roiled by the Russian invasion, um, the supply chains adopting, adapting, and you've got huge um, drops in the cost of moving stuff from China, at least to the West Coast of the United States. But I assume globally, this is all the true, you know, and, and when I say huge, I'm talking about 80, 90% drops from numbers that we had never seen before. You know, yeah. this, uh, but things going back to normal. And, and that's very encouraging. Now, we haven't met in the middle uh, in the sense that if you if you say, okay, well, if one month rates are a little noisy, then you need to look at the annual rate or a six month rate or something. But if you look at longer term, then inflation is still higher than where the Fed is. And so the Fed is looking at this and saying, well, you were less accommodative than we were, um, but we still have not really put the clamps on inflation. And, just a basic rule of thumb would be that the interest rate would need to be higher than the inflation rate. And that's particularly true when asset markets are doing so well. Um, you know, if you look at the 10 year uh, interest rate, it's it's been running in the 3.5 to 3.7%, yeah. which is well below where we expect the Fed's fund to be after today and well below uh, where inflation is over any longer term measure. So the if you're sitting in the you know the Fed meeting, you're you're saying everything is going our way. Let's not screw it up, which means interest rates continue to go up till we see a meeting in the middle. Um, hopefully, inflation comes down fast, so that happens sooner rather than later. But the thing that I do not expect next year is a quick pivot to chasing the inflation rate down. Uh, right now, you know we're looking at uh, four plus interest rates and headed to mm -hmm. maybe five. Uh, yep. And of course, who knows, it could go higher, it could end up at four and a half, but until you get a meeting in the middle, you are going to continue to raise, but until you see inflation at a sustained 2% or below, I don't think you're going to see a cut, particularly if you're at four and a half or even 5%, because uh, having the interest rate at say 200 basis points, two percentage points above the inflation rate has traditionally been viewed as being pretty neutral. Yeah. Uh, so it might be a little tight, but if you're erring on the side, particularly if the unemployment rate has stayed low and you, you want to err on the side of not getting a rebound in inflation, uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see interest rates, to see no interest rate cuts in all of 2023. Uh, but at some point, 
if we meet in the middle and inflation continues to go down, then there'll be a negative shock that is is you know on the downside for inflation. Um, uh, it could be an economic growth shock, or it could be a, you know a, a a new source of energy that becomes more economical, or a new discovery of you know, like. You, you could easily point to fracking as a, a positive shock. Oh, absolutely. Brought inflation down. Yep. Uh, and if that happens, then I think the Fed will cut aggressively. Uh, I, as a, a Federal Reserve governor, keeping interest rates low and having inflation low is, is just perfect. Everyone loves you. Nobody's yelling at you. Well, except except savers might not like you, love you, particularly when you keep, in, you keep interest rates at what is really a negative real rate. I mean, we've, we always taught, learned that, in, you know, interest rates should be inflation plus a real rate, right? So if, if inflation is one and another real rate, the real rate is one, then, then the interest rate should be two. And yet we've lived through an era where interest rates were being kept close to zero where the real rate was negative. Uh, and uh, that has to have economic consequences. That is, that has to have distortive impact on, on the economy in one way or the other. And it'd be interesting to see when everything turns around, if they're willing to go back to zero, if, if that's where they think now is the new normal, uh, or, or whether they'll try to go back to, because right now, four and a half percent, we lived through much higher interest rates. And, you know, it was considered four and a half percent was considered low. That was a low Fed funds rate. That was 2007, I think, last time we saw four and a half. And we've had this weird decade where everybody expects zero. And I wonder if that, and it looks like given the 10 year, it looks like markets are expecting us to return to zero at some point. Uh, I think zero was a consequence of the financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that zero didn't produce inflation until 2021 is an artifact of that. And yep. you know, we could have another financial crisis that completely messes things up for another decade. But I, I'm, when I say low, low, I think more of like uh, 2% inflation, 2%, yep. uh, zero real interest rate, which is a weird thing to, to think about if you look at history. Um, but, you know, today, the economy, uh, technology, the world, it's, it doesn't resemble history. It's quite different than what things were historically. And it might be that a zero real interest rate on risk-free assets is the new norm. But negative, I, I don't see how that can be sustainable in the indefinite future. All right, one final, so final question. What do you, what do you think about uh, the chances of recession for next year, given what the Fed is doing and given inflation? No, just based on history, uh, it seems very high. And the question is, is it a mild recession, which people hardly notice? And Yep. Uh, or is it a more severe recession? And right now, every month, the I'm raising the odds of mild and lowering the odds of severe. Um, I hate to give probabilities where I don't really have a strong opinion, but, yep. uh, but at this point, it seems like it's 50-50. And this is the first time all year that I've thought the Fed had even an, you know, an even chance of navigating a, a soft landing. So I'm more optimistic than I was, uh, but I'm certainly not counting on that. But of course, we saw in the 1970s, we saw the Fed respond to rising inflation by increasing interest rates, inflation comes down a little bit, and then as soon as the Fed reverses, inflation picks up again. Um, so, I mean, it's it's hard to extrapolate from the 70s to today because so many things are different, but 
some things also the same. So it's it's hard to tell if we if they defeat inflation now, they've defeated it, or if it just if 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 it's something that comes back repeatedly. And maybe some physical policy changes need to happen. Maybe running these massive deficits is not good policy in the long run. I think all of that is true. And that's why I think there's a good chance that the Fed does not cut rates next year, even if yeah. there's a mild recession. And I have a all question right. for you, though, before we get off. Yeah. Um, because everything, uh, we, we keep seeing more and more uh, about Twitter, you know, the, the Twitter files. And, and I don't want to talk about the politics of, of Twitter yeah. or Twitter of the past. But the thing that's really struck me is how, um, how righteously smug the mainstream media is about Twitter's problems. You know, Twitter's flailing around right now. There's no question yep. about it. Yep. Um, and it. And it strikes me from an ingenuism perspective that these are just people who have no idea how learning, other than book learning, learning what is already known, how learning happens. You know, they, the way that Twitter will eventually, if, if they do, I'm not guaranteeing. They, they, they might will, not, they might fail. Yeah. The, the way they figure things out and do something really interesting and um, you know, transformative to, to the company, but also to society is to try a lot of things and discard what fails and, and build on what, what works. I think the sad reality is that uh, mainstream media is so focused on politics and so focused on the content, the political content of what's going on on Twitter that, you know, so if, if, if this was a, a opposite political perspective, they would be celebrating the experimentation. They would be celebrating all of that. I don't think they, it's not that they don't know it. It's that they, um, and, and you could argue there was a lot of celebration of, of SBF, right, of FTX, when it was convenient because he had partially because he had the right political agenda, right? He was he was the he was giving a lot of his wealth to Democratic candidates. So sadly, I think that our mainstream media on both sides of the aisle is very infected in everything they report by the politics of it. And they 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 don't they're not objective about it. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think some of what Elon Musk is doing is ridiculous. But I also recognize that this is going to take time. He's trying different things. He's doing it on the fly, um, and uh, he's experimenting. And he might fail. Uh, but what he's trying to do is super difficult. I think much more difficult than he expected. Um, which is part of why he paid so much money for it. I, I think if he'd realized how difficult this would be, maybe. And he's dealing with not only a, the business of it, the business of it is hard enough. He's dealing with the politics of it. And the, the politics are complicated. Uh, you know, he got in this row with Apple. Um, we accused Apple of all these things. And so, so Tim Cook had him over to the Apple compound and they came away best friends, I guess, uh, because suddenly Elon Musk has changed his tune about Apple. Uh, I, I wish we'd had transcripts of that meeting. That would have been fun. But it, he, you know, he's he's a little childish, just as a as a personality. He he says things that are stupid. He he acts out of impulse in ways. And because it's Twitter, I'm sure CEOs, some CEOs are like that anyway. But we don't know. But Twitter, everything is public. Everything is it, talk about transparency. Wow, is there transparency here? And we see it, so we're, we're evidence of it. But at the end of the day. Twitter was, a, in spite of its success with the number of people, it was a failing company from a business perspective. 
he's trying to create both business success and to pivot it philosophically and, and politically. And that is, wow, that is a massive challenge. And, and, and it's not easy. It's, it's fun to watch though. I, I enjoy watching. It's a lot of, a lot of entertainment in, in a new dimension. Yeah. Uh, so I'll end with it. I read about this experiment once and I don't know how, I don't know the experimental design, so I'm not vouching for it, yeah. but it's a cool story and it, it's completely aligned with what we think and uh, why Elon Musk would be you know, a centibillionaire. Uh, so the experiment was to give three groups a um, handful, you know, a few bags of marshmallows and a few packages of spaghetti uh, and give them 30 minutes to build as tall a structure as possible that would stand on its own. Uh, and the three groups were uh, a group of, of youngsters and the kindergartners or second graders, but they were under 10 years old. So a group yeah. of children, a group of engineers and a group of MBAs. Uh, and the MBAs failed miserably. Yep. Uh, the engineers designed and built a, a pretty impressive structure, uh, but the kids built the tallest structure and they did it by just jamming marshmallows getting into, into marshmallows <laughs> and when it would fall over they'd figure it out and and it didn't look as elegant but it was it, it, as far as what the stated goal of the mission was so i think there's a lot i don't i don't think it's a coincidence that elon musk um occurs as childish and has had such success in such varied areas of and of course he he, he is a combination of this childishness and the engineering mind i mean he has he has a an amazing mind if you talk to people who've worked for him in spacex i mean he he has these brilliant ideas that nobody else comes up with and he solves real engineering problems and he's willing to fail we've talked about this in the past it, it, one of the real unique things about spacex and i think about musk is his willingness to try something fail move on elon musk has the same did the same at the same kind of philosophy at Amazon. And I think under people underestimate that. And yeah, maybe that does come from a certain, you know, in childhood, we build towers, they fall down, we try again, we, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, the kids who cry every time they, the tower falls down, are probably not the kids who are going to become centimillionaires. That's right. <laughs>